to mention to you guys that uh, today is kind of a bittersweet day because um, today's Zachary goes his last Sunday with us. He's one of our interns. He's right over here. Give him a big hand for uh, serving for the last two years. He'll be here on Wednesday um, as one last thing, but uh, we had his party last Wednesday. If you missed the party, uh, I apologize. Um, Zach didn't even get any cake at his own party, so that's our bad. Didn't get enough cake for that. But if you weren't here Wednesday, um, we watched a really powerful video. And uh, I want to talk to you guys quickly about um, just some ways you can begin feeding yourself spiritually, because we've talked a lot about that uh, during the course of the book of Acts. Um, but we're trying to give you guys resources that you, can give your, that you can use for your own walk with God. And so one of the ways that we do that is there's a website, the church website at TomaBibleChurch.org. Uh, if you want to go to the uh, high school page and then click on Downloads, um, we've basically got the last year, year and a half for our high school ministry on podcasts, okay? You can also go to your iTunes store and just type in TBC Overflow and subscribe directly through your iPhone or your smartphone. And we do that because we're trying to get just this stuff out there. Not, we're not trying to promote ourselves. We're just trying to promote Jesus and the kingdom of God and just um, help as best we can. So if you want to catch up on a series we've done in the past or whatever, um, and we're struggling with doubt, we have a, series, a whole series on doubt, doubting your faith, uh, that's uploaded on the podcast. We also have... Um, a whole series on dating, okay? About a year ago, we posted that, and so it's still on there. You can download that if you'd like to um, as well. Uh, so that's one resource. Another resource is um, a couple of church websites I would direct you to that I would say are magnificent, powerful, um, the best ones that I know about that are out there. Uh, two churches. One's Marshall Church in Seattle. That's the pastor that you saw on Wednesday night, uh, this past Wednesday. Uh, Mark Driscoll is his name. Their church is uh, Marshall Church in Seattle. Um, make sure you do not go to the website of the Mars Hill Bible Church in Michigan. That's the guy I mentioned last week that's like a heretic, you know. That's that guy. So don't go to that guy's church. But the, the one on, on MarshallChurch.org in Seattle, um, that's the one that you want to look at. And uh, they have a ton of just stuff online that you can look at and, 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 and just listen to on your own. Um, also, the VillageChurch.net in Dallas. Another amazing pastor, Matt Chandler is his name. And those are two guys that, that pastor whole churches. They're the kind of guys that I would definitely think youth would want to listen to. They get really, really good stuff. I listen to these guys all the time. And uh, what I tend to do is I'll tend to like listen to a sermon uh, while I'm working out at the gym and kind of go for a prayer walk and just pray and think through what God's you know, sending me through that sermon that I've just listened to. Okay? It's a great way to enhance what you're doing with your, in your walk with God and a great way to feed yourself spiritually beyond just what you're reading in the Bible, because I know all you guys are reading your Bible like every day, right? That's happening, right? Sure it is. Uh, that's our encouragement. Don't just listen to them and that's it. I would say read your Bible and do something like this. you got to spend time in prayer, obviously, as well. So those are some resources for you. We've been looking at the book of Acts, as I mentioned, and uh, we have been um, in this book for about two months now, and we'll be going for, I'm not sure how long, probably a long time, so get ready for that. Uh, but if you're new to the Bible at all, um, the New Testament was written after Christ, Old Testament before Christ. And in the New Testament, we've got the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And after the Gospels, you've got the book of Acts. The Gospels are the story of Jesus. The book of Acts is the story of the church. Basically, what happened after Christ left the earth. So that's where we're at in our uh, series, is the book of Acts. Now, um, 
Let me summarize. We were uh, two weeks ago. We looked at the first martyr, the first person that gave up his life for Jesus. His name was Stephen. We looked at Stephen. Now here's what happened after Stephen's death. After Stephen died and gave his life for Jesus, uh, the church was scattered. As you can imagine, imagine if we lived in a, lived in a place today where. The government did not like Christians, and we're gathering here this morning, and one of you guys gets taken out and beaten to death, like on Sunday morning, that you guys probably would not come back here for a while, right? You probably would scatter off and say, you know, I'm going to not go around the outback anymore because people die, right? And so um, that's kind of what happened as Stephen died for his faith. People scattered. The church got scattered because of the persecution that broke out against the church. There was a man named Saul who later became Paul. We'll discuss him next week and how he came to Christ miraculously. But Paul was the one leading the charge with this persecution. He was one of the ones at the forefront of persecuting the church before Christ saved him. Imagine this. There were mothers and fathers that came to know Jesus they got dragged off from their homes because of following Jesus. So imagine you at your house, you're all sitting there watching the, I don't know, Justin Bieber movie together, and, and, uh, and there's a knock at the door, there's a knock on the door, and there's a cop there, and he says, where's your mom, where's your dad? We're taking them downtown. So they get pulled off, they get arrested, they get handcuffed, taken downtown for questioning, get thrown in jail for several days, and you're left there by yourself, Justin Bieber movie, right? Just nothing, no parents. This was happening in the early church. People were being hauled off by the authorities because they believed and they followed, they followed Jesus. And Paul was leading this whole charge. So the, the church scatters just after Stephen is put to death. But here's what's really crazy. All this persecution led to the church exploding. You would think that the exact opposite would happen. You would think that when people get persecuted, it would actually quell the movement. But what happened was the exact opposite. The church exploded when it was being persecuted. In fact, that's when it exploded the most, was during the time of persecution. Now the people doing the persecuting, if you can imagine the gospel kind of like a fire, the people doing the persecuting, they thought that persecution would be like water to fire. But it was more like gasoline. So the more they tried to, to quell this movement, the more it spread. The more it spread. So look at Acts chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 4. And this is picking up just after Stephen was put to death for his faith. Acts chapter 8, verse 4. Here's what it says. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. So people, when they're scattered, they're not just being quiet about their faith. They're actually preaching the word more fervently, more passionately, more boldly, even though they're being persecuted for it. Verse 5. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah. This is a guy named Philip, who was basically a deacon in the early church. He was a friend of Stephen's. He knew Stephen. He knew what could happen to him if he shared the gospel as well. He might also die. But he did it anyway. Verse 6. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Go ahead and look at questions one through three at your tables. Go ahead and discuss those questions.
Okay. One of my favorite parts of this passage is in verses 6, where it says, When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. So he's doing miracles, he's casting out demons, he's healing lame people, he's healing blind people. And it says the, the crowd paid attention to what he said. And I'm thinking, well, yeah, because he's doing miracles, right? I mean, it'd be really easy for you guys to pay attention to me if I did miracles up here on the stage. It'd be really, really easy, wouldn't it? And so we see this throughout Scripture, though, that, that um, God does not leave us just to blind faith. We see that God does not just leave us, uh, He does not just send a prophet or a messenger and, and just to say, okay, believe that God is the God who says, the God that He says He is, and you seem to believe it in blind faith. He gives people evidence, hard evidence, that He is who He said He is. So Philip is standing there, if, if he is uh, um, preaching the gospel, and someone says, okay, we don't believe you, he can say, well, okay, well, watch this. And then, there you go. And they're like, well, I can't argue with that, right? And so it's kind of unfair to an extent, but at the same time, what just happened? I don't like... You are so quick, man. I don't know how you... I need to start paying you money back there or something. You're like a real DJ or something. Um... But what you see throughout Scripture is this, this, this theme that God does not leave us just to blind faith. He, he wants to give us evidence for what is true and what is not true. Now, uh, we see the gospel, the gospel is going to Samaria. Guys, pull my mic down just a little bit. It's kind of got this, like, lots of S's. When I'm not saying S's, I'm hearing S's. You guys hearing that? It's like, it's like a snake or something. It's, like, kind of freaking me out, you know? Um, so the gospel is going to Samaria. There we go. The gospel is going out to Samaria. Now this is a really big deal because the Jews, they hated Samaritans. If you remember in the, in, the, in the gospels, Jesus talked to a woman at the well who was a Samaritan woman. And she said, you shouldn't be talking to me for two reasons. I'm a woman, first of all. Secondly, I'm a Samaritan. And so Jews tended to hate Samaritans. Okay, They would walk around Samaria when they had to go north to south or did I get that right? North to south. No, this is north to south. North to south, or south to north. Whatever, you get the idea. They had to walk around Samaria because they hated Samaritans so much. That was the relation between the Jews and the Samaritans. So Samaria is a dark place spiritually. There's lots of demonic possession in Samaria. Now if you think about, what is a place, an actual physical place, that you think of when you think of darkness and evil? Okay? I'm referring to like, like sin and like, you know, Sin City, Las Vegas. Or um, uh, if you're an Aggie, you might think of Austin as being the center of all evil in the world, maybe, I don't know. Um, but a place I think of typically, when I think of a place that just seems dark, as far as a city just being dark, I think of, uh, I think of New Orleans. Um, I've been there several times. And whenever I'm there, I'm always kind of freaked out by the place because you see voodoo being done, like in the town square. You see, like, these soothsayers, these magicians, these, like, weird-looking people that sit out front and say, I'll come tell your fortune and so on. And it's, like, right there in the middle of the town square, and you're going, all right, I get, I get that being, like, a house somewhere in town, but you're, like, in the middle. 
You're like in the middle of the whole place here, you know? There you go. So, so you see, my first time ever being in New Orleans on Bourbon Street, the place smelled like urine. Not joking at all. It stunk, okay? And, uh, and so, no offense if you're from this area, by the way, but I'm just saying. Um, and, and so my, my first exposure to this, this city, I, I just had this weird feeling. I mean, you, you go into the, into the grocery stores in New Orleans, and there's like the cereal, cereal aisle, there's like the milk aisle, and like the liquor aisle, Okay? It's like all together. Like here you have a liquor store. You've got grocery store, liquor store. New Orleans you have like the liquor aisle in the grocery store. Okay? And so the place just kind of feels like dark and just depraved spiritually. If you can think of a place that you felt that in, that's kind of what Samaria was to the people in the story. That was kind of the place where it was seen as dark and depraved and demonic and sort of evil. And we just don't go over there. That's kind of what Samaria was seen as by the Jews. Now, um, here's what's crazy. They go, the gospel goes to this place and lots of Samaritans believe. So imagine the place that you see is dark and depraved, whatever that place is, that you go there, share the gospel, and many people come to faith. How freaked out would you be by that? You're like, what? This isn't supposed to happen. This is New Orleans. This is Austin. This is Las Vegas. Like, What's going on here? And so we know it's an act of the Holy Spirit because many people are coming to know Christ in spite of the fact this is seen as a demonic, evil, depraved, and sinful place in Samaria. So the response must have been really surprising to, to Philip and the people he's with. Now, um, what we learn from that is sometimes the people that you would least expect are the ones who come to faith in Christ. If you think about someone that you know a group of people that you know, that you, that you see as just they're totally lost, they're totally gone. I, I just don't know how God could possibly save them. They seem so anti-God. I, I'm not quite sure how God could save them. This is kind of what's happening in Samaria in this story. Now, look at verse 9. Here's what it says. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. I guess he called himself that. Verse 11. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. Now the question is, okay, you think of sorcery, you think of like some like Harry Potter junk or whatever, and that sort of thing, but what is sorcery? When it comes to sorcery in the Bible... Here's what it's talking about. The words sorcery and magic in the Bible are kind of synonymous. They mean the same thing. Now, this is not the kind of magic you're thinking about. This is not any David Blaine or Chris Angel garbage. That's not what they're talking about. Um, this guy's not putting himself like in a clear capsule in the middle of some city square for 24 hours without food and water and all that kind of junk. This guy was doing real magic, so to speak, that was being produced by demonic power. Okay, that's what's happening here with this guy, Simon. Sorcery and magic was like the ability to, con- to control people and nature by demonic forces. So today you can look at the categories of uh, palm readers, psychics, horoscopes. Um, here's the thing, guys. Just because something is powerful doesn't mean it's good. Just because something appears to be true or appears to be powerful doesn't mean it's actually good. 
And so another word for, for sorcery in the Bible is the word pharmakia. Now what word do you think we might get today from that word? Pharmacy. You guys are so smart. You guys are awesome. So another word in the Bible for sorcery is the word pharmakia, where we get the word pharmacy today. And so I want you to understand this. There was a connection back then between this thing called sorcery and magic and drug use. And you're thinking, I thought drugs were invented at my school. Not like... But drugs have been around for a long, long, long time. Okay? They've been around for a long time. And so even back then, people did drugs. And they often... It was often accompanied by these types of demonic things. Okay? And so they would utilize these, these drugs or influences to hopefully summon demonic power so they could cast spells over things and so on. And so there was a tie-in here. There was a tie-in between sorcery and, and drug use. And let me just say this before we move on. If you're someone here today and you've had, this, you've had drug use in your past or even presently, um, I want to say this to you. If, you have, if you're currently doing these kinds of things, you are participating in the demonic. You are. And I know that your friends don't think that's true and they think it's just fun and recreational and so on, but let me tell you, if you're participating in those types of activities, you are participating in the demonic. You are. I had a high school kid recently tell me that he's tried some things and so on and we're talking about it and he's saying, I mean, come on, what's, the real, what's really the big deal, Dave? Like, it's just... It's just experiment. It's just recreation. I'm not going to do it the rest of my life. It's just kind of a one-time, two-time thing. And uh, he's trying to justify his drug use. And I'm going, my dude, you're participating in the demonic. Like, you don't see how... Yeah, of course. At the beginning, it seems like just recreational, just fun. It's just what it seems like on the surface. But that's how Satan works. Don't you get that? That's exactly what Satan does. Of course he's going to make it seem like very tame and totally fine. When you're just starting out. That's how everything is when you're starting out with stuff like that. It seems like just, it's just fun. We're just hanging out. We're just having a good time. What's the big deal? How is this really going to influence me spiritually? And if that's you, you are in the demonic. You are. You are giving Satan a way in. And let me tell you this. If you are currently doing these types of things, you are doing exactly what Satan wants you to do. Do you think Satan is sitting there going, no man, please, please don't do drugs. Please, please, you did, you did it again. Do you think he's sitting there saying, please don't? No, he's saying, please do. If you're currently doing these kinds of things, you are doing exactly what Satan wants you to do. Exactly what he wants you to do. And you are participating in the demonic. I got permission this week to ask to, to tell the story about my wife. She's actually here today, but here we go. Uh, she um, she has this in her past. I mean, she has drug use in her past, and she'll talk about it with you if you ask her. But she's she's referred to this many times to me. She has said things like, you know, I saw how just dark that world was. I saw how demonic it was, and she describes like that part of her life as just being a very dark, dark place, and and she describes it as. Uh, when she was experiencing those kinds of things in her life, that she just felt darkness. She felt this demonic world that felt closer at that point of her life than any other time. 
And so if, if, if you have any question about that, let me tell you, you're doing just what Satan wants you to do if you're in that world. I have preached one funeral in my entire life as a pastor. And it was a 25-year-old guy who overdosed and probably wasn't a Christian. He's buried out close to Belton High School in a graveyard. He overdosed. So don't tell me that drugs aren't a big deal. Um, I, I've, I've talked to people that go to this church in this ministry that have lost parents literally to death because of drugs. So don't tell me it's not a big deal. I have seen many, many TV shows, as you probably have as well, of people and what it's done to families and relationships and individual lives. Don't tell me it's not a big deal. So if you are currently involved in this kind of stuff, I'm telling you, you are involved in the demonic and doing just what Satan wants you to do. With that said, let's read verse 12. Verse 12. But when they believed Philip, but when they believed Philip as he, was, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God, in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Verse 13. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there, that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So here's what happened. So everyone's hearing the gospel. They're believing in the gospel, wanting to follow Jesus. This guy Simon, this magician I'm talking to you about, he actually, it says he believed. He saw miracles, he believed, then he got baptized, according to the text, okay? And then uh, afterwards, Peter and John show up, lay hands on the people, pray for them. Holy Spirit comes on these people and, uh, and sort of makes it official, so to speak, for everyone that's there. Now, verse 18. When Simon saw the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom... I lay my hands, may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry, because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness, and pray to the Lord in the hope that He may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Now, my goal for this next question is to start a fight at your tables, okay? We're going to do a little debate here. Here's the questions. This passage says, listen up, this passage says that Simon saw miracles, it says he believed, and he was baptized. But then Peter rebukes him sharply. So do you think Simon is truly saved or not saved? Why or why not? Look at the passage and support your answer either way. Go ahead and discuss. I want a good fight out of this one. Let's go.
Okay, I want to hear from you guys. Okay, how many in the room would say that he is not saved? Raise your hands. Alright. How many in the room would say he is saved? Question was, how many would say he is saved? Start with that one first. He is saved. Raise your hand. How many would say he's not saved? Raise your hands. Alright, I want to hear from, from those who said that he is saved. Tell me why you think he is saved. I want to hear some responses. Yes, yes. There was like five or six people that said he is saved. Tell me why you think he's saved. Yes. Okay. All right. So John is saying that it says he believed and also says that he had the Holy Spirit uh, in him as well. Okay. So what are some other uh, observations? Yes. What's that? Love wins. Everybody's a winner. What else? Anybody else want to argue about this? See, now you're all wimpy. Now you're like, no, I have to actually defend myself. Are you serious? All right, okay. Everyone else thinks that he's not saved. So tell me why you think he's not saved. Bueller. Bueller. Yes. Yes, I pointed to you. My pointer's a little bit off this way today, so yes. Okay. All right, if you can't hear what she said, she said that because his motive was bad, he tried to buy the power, so to speak, uh, and Peter said that he's... You know, he's repent and so on. Yes? Aren't y'all like related or something? Aren't y'all related? Okay. Go ahead. Hold him back. Say he might be a Christian, just a really, really immature, uninformed Christian. Okay. Well, let me just, uh, for the sake of time, let me just boil it down for you. Um, there's a really, 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 really good chance he's not saved. All right. So the not saved, you almost win the argument because, yeah, we're not sure 100 percent, but I would say 98 percent sure. <laughs> This guy is probably not saved. Now, if I get to heaven and I see this guy, I'm not going to be like, dude, I called you out in my talk, and I'm sorry about that. Um, I mean, God's that gracious. He is. But I'm saying, in this story, I think we can say that he's probably not saved. I'll tell you why. First of all, you guys mentioned this before. He's believing for the wrong reasons. He's believing for selfish motives. He wants power. Peter tells him he has no part in the ministry. And then lastly, instead of repenting at the very end... He just wants to escape judgment. Okay? Now, here's what happens, I think, in our world. Many people confess sin, but don't, don't repent from sin. To confess sin means to just admit that it's sinful 
admit to God and everyone else, this is sinful, this is wrong. Confession is like an admission of guilt. That's what confession is. Repentance, though, is the next step, I think, in salvation. And that is basically that you turn from sin. Not that you're doing works to earn your salvation. I'm not saying that at all. Don't get me wrong here. I'm saying that someone who really has come to Christ is going to be on some kind of pathway towards Christ-likeness. Now, I'm not saying that you're perfect. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that there's got to be some kind of fruit that is you heading towards a more Christ-like life. Okay? Something that, that, that's evident. Now, I'm not going to get into what that looks like concretely. I'm just saying that's what I think the Bible is saying in many other passages besides this one. There has to be some element of repentance, meaning turning from sin. Okay? Now, listen. That might mean, repentance always means a very real, physical sometimes, turning away from sin. Now, here's an example of that. Whatever you're struggling with in your life, sinful-wise, if it's a relationship, getting too physical, repentance means that as you're about to go make out with your boyfriend or girlfriend, you literally turn around and say, you know what, we, we, sh- we can't do this. I'm trying to follow Jesus here, and you're a stumbling block. It, it might mean that you literally, physically, go break up with someone who's not a believer in Christ, but, and you are a believer in Christ, because Christ says, do not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. It might mean that if you're going to a party where there's going to be drugs and alcohol, and you're going to get sucked up into that lifestyle, it might mean that you turn the car around literally and drive the other direction. Repentance almost always leads to a real, literal, sometimes physical, turning away from sin and turning your life towards Jesus Christ. That is a picture of what true repentance looks like. And we don't see that evidence in the man's life here in this passage. All he cares about is just escaping God's judgment. I would say this is a very terrifying passage when you think about it, isn't it? Because this guy saw miracles. It says he believed And he was baptized. But he still wasn't saved. That's the most terrifying part of the whole passage. It says he had all these experiences. It says he believed, but he wasn't saved. So the question we have to answer is, how do we know if we are really saved? How do you know if you look at your own life, how do you know if you're really, truly saved? I'll say this. I think motive is everything. The motive that you came to Christ under. Whatever motive you had that was pushing you towards Jesus. Motive is everything. If you came to Christ to be accepted by other friends, I'm not sure you're saved. If you came to Christ just to escape judgment, I'm not sure you're saved. If you came to Christ just to get a different group of friends, I'm not sure you're saved. Motive is everything. If you came to Christ because you recognize you're a sinner, separated from God because of your sin, and you recognize that Christ is the only way, the only resolution for your friend, the only payment for your sin, then you're saved. Your faith is put in the right thing. We can oftentimes have a correct intellectual belief, like this guy may have had, but completely wrong motives. And motives reveal everything. Motives reveal what's really taking place inside your own heart. And this is what we see in this guy's life. I think many people come to Christ today just to escape judgment. Just like Simon. 
And here's the reality. If you came to Jesus just to escape hell, and you didn't repent and get on this pathway towards Christ's likeness, I'm not sure you're saved. If you never experienced a time in your life where you recognize your utter sinfulness before God, your utter depravity before God, and recognize that, and you felt this like kick to your gut, recognizing how sinful you are before God, if you never came to that place before God and really repented from your sin, I'm not sure you're a true believer in Christ, a true follower of Christ. And so you've got to ask yourself the question, is, is your faith just an intellectual belief? Just a belief in the facts? Because even the demons, James tells us, even the demons believe the facts. Even they believe the facts of the gospel. But there's no repentance. That is the test. Is there repentance? What is your motive in coming to Christ? If you're someone who came to Christ just to escape hell, Coming to Jesus just to escape hell is like getting married just to escape singleness. Alright? Think about that for just a second. Coming to Christ just to escape hell is like getting married just to escape singleness. Imagine if you get married one day and your husband or wife asks you, So why did you marry me? And you say, Well, I was tired of being single. I was tired of fixing my own food. I was tired of doing laundry. I was tired of... uh, Eating alone, movies alone, felt like a loser all the time, so... And you're available. And you're breathing, so there you go. I mean, imagine if that's why you said you're marrying someone. She would be like, okay, game over, right? But that's not why you marry someone. You marry someone hopefully because you love them, want a relationship with them. Now what comes with that is an escape from singleness. And what comes with... Coming to Christ is an escape from judgment and hell, but that cannot be the motive that's driving the ship. It can't be about just that. So the question, before we do like two more questions at your tables real quick, is what if this is you? What if you find yourself in a place where you intellectually believe... You believe all the facts about the gospel. You believe Christ is God. You believe in the resurrection. You believe He paid for your sins on the cross. You have this intellectual belief, but it's never really hit your heart in such a way that you've repented, turned from sin in your life, and turned towards Christ. You've never repented. If that's you, listen to me right now, what I have to say about this. I think if that is you right now, your first prayer to God needs to be, God, change my heart. To desire repentance. Because you can't flip a switch and just say, okay, I'm going to repent. Okay, I'm going to hurry up and do this before I go to hell. You can't just flip a switch. You've got to go in and pray to God. Go home tonight. Get on your knees before God and say, God, right now, I don't feel anything towards you. I don't feel any affection towards you. I don't feel any love towards you. I don't feel any sense of wrongness towards my sin. And God, I'm coming to you right now because I want... To feel those things. I want to sense those things. I want to repent. But right now my heart's not in the right place. I need you to change my heart. Because you cannot change your own heart. Only the Holy Spirit can change your heart. And so your first prayer might need to be, God, change my heart. Incline my heart towards you. So I can truly repent and turn towards you. Turn away from my sin. If that is you, do that today. Come to Christ today. 
get past just the intellectual belief and come to a place of real, true repentance today. If you've had wrong motives about why you came to Christ, come to Him with the right motives today. Pray to receive Christ today. Go ahead and discuss uh, the last few questions at your tables. And then go ahead, when you're done, go ahead and pray for your uh, tables at the end of that. Go ahead and discuss. Then you'll be dismissed.